from Calvin's absence this week, we've brought on fellow Twin Geeks writer Graham Austin to discuss the box office with us, as well as our featured film, Akira Kurosawa's 1961 samurai classic, Yojimbo. This is the first of Kurosawa's many fantastic films we'll be covering, so please look forward to David and Graham's insightful discussion on this highly influential masterpiece. Alright, welcome back to another Twin Geek cast. This week, Calvin can't be here because he's busy having a honeymoon. So instead, we brought in our good friend Graham Austin here, who uh, has written for us before, and we're very excited to have on. How are you doing, Graham? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, big shoes to fill. And I guess I'm the uh, I'm the uh, de facto samurai expert here, since I wrote the uh, Sword of Doom, and we're going to be talking about Yojimbo. Yeah. Yeah, I realized that when me and Kelvin were talking last, we're like, oh, I think we're pigeonholing uh, Graham into just samurai work. <laughs> you know, there are worse things to be pigeonholed under. You know, I could be the the happy death day uh, person. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Calvin would let you have that. Yeah, exactly. God forbid we make you the Marvel person or something. Uh, please, no. Uh, <laughs> well, as usual, uh, we'd like to run through the top ten of the box office here uh, sure. at the beginning, so we'll start with that as well. And since I've done my fair share of talking about it, I'm going to let you, Graham, go ahead and okay. give your opinion on some of the things here. So I'm going to start from the bottom and introduce them, and you can tell me some quick thoughts or your long thoughts if you have lots of thoughts. Yeah, uh, disclaimer for everybody listening, I have not gotten to the theater very often this year, so I haven't seen a single one of these, but I am happy to give uh, my uninformed opinion on all of them. So uh, That's good. I mean, and that's the thing is that I think me and you are kind of in the same boat, is that we don't go out to the movies so often. We're, we're much more, like, classically educated in film. Yeah, I mean, what is better for a film criticism than offering hot takes of movies that you haven't seen before? Right, that's like the whole business. All right, so at uh, number 10 here, we have Apollo 11. It's a new uh, documentary about the launch 50 years ago, which we actually did just have Calvin put up a review of, even though he's gone. I have seen the trailer for Apollo 11, and it looks pretty fantastic. The uh, footage, I don't know who was recording it at the time, but uh, I guess it was in 70 millimeter, and it looks pretty amazing. Um, I have a co- that is uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I have a coworker who saw it and also sung its praises. So, I'm that is probably the only one on this list that I will eventually make it to. But uh, I'm glad that documentaries seem to be doing pretty well recently. Uh, I know that uh, Peter Jackson's uh, uh, "They Shall Not Grow Old" was also a pretty good box office charter. Yeah, once it finally came around, it actually made it into the box office again. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to see because Apollo Eleven's actually climbed up in the numbers here was it 15 last week it looks like so it's nice to see that they're actually making it in you know just rec- i think recently there's been an influx of popular and celebrated documentaries not like you know uh longer ago i suppose yeah i, I wonder if netflix has something to do with that with the popularity of all the uh, like true crime documentaries and stuff people seem to have a hunger for that sort of thing i think also just access is a bigger part of it i know that i didn't watch nearly as many documentaries until streaming kind of came along you know yeah for sure when they're available like that then you kind of just it's easily to click one on and then because i mean i love documentaries but it's before this was much harder to get around to them especially if you don't live in a big city area where they are willing to show documentaries yeah exactly all right uh we'll keep taking a look at the list here at number nine we have uh fighting with my family I don't have a whole lot to offer on this one. I know that it's a wrestling movie, and The Rock has a cameo. Uh, I guess that's enough to 
rocketed up the charts. Uh, I assume it's pretty good. Maybe. Yeah, that's another one uh, Calvin did a review for, and he enjoyed it. Calvin actually has a lot of insight into wrestling, though, as well. But I believe The Rock also actually produced it. It's a throwback to um, a true story involving the the girl, whoever. Calvin knows more about this stuff, man. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's been around for a little while now, and it's kind of slowly finding its way out. All right, well, maybe I'll check that out eventually. Maybe, probably on, you know, digital or whenever it comes around. That's what it sounds like it's worth. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Number eight here we have, yeah, number eight we have uh, Greta, which is the, the latest horror film while we're waiting around for the good ones to come through. I actually thought this one might have had a chance of being good in the, like, bottom of my expectations it could have uh could have had a shot as like a sort of fun hitchcockian thriller but i think it just looks kind of bad mm-hmm. the, the ratings seem to agree with you there yeah you know, it just doesn't seem to be doing terribly well but i guess people are in a thriller mood if it if it's uh charted this uh this director really has anything of um value since like the 90s he did like interview with the vampire in the crying game but that's like the only thing of no mm. neil jordan uh, yeah, well, interview from a vampire to Greta, that's kind of a fall from grace, but, you know, at least he's making money. Yeah, it's here in the box office, at least, so. Uh, number seven here, we have, uh, Isn't It Romantic, which, uh... I'm gonna take a wild guess and say this is a romance movie. Yes, I've Am heard right? it's actually, yes. Uh, from what I understand, it's kind of a subversive romance movie, uh, like, the, the main character, Rebel Wilson's character like figures out that she's but like she gets hit on the head and then she's suddenly like a you know falling into all these romance tropes or something i don't know i remember calvin talked about it a little bit but then said yeah, he, it was much worse <laughs> than he was expecting it. i don't know what he was uh expecting with the old hit on the head and uh strange romantic things happen trope which seems uh danny boyle's doing this beatles spin on that Right. Uh, I did not actually watch the trailer for that. Was that Yesterday, I think that's called, right? Yeah. Where everyone forgets. I don't understand why that seems to be the... Yeah, why that seems to be the go-to thing to, like, motivate bizarre plots where somebody just gets hit on the head and then all of a sudden surreal things happen. Yeah, it it seems like an an odd It's like the laziest screenwriting (laughs) trick, but maybe it'll work for Danny Boyle. I might go check out the yesterday one. It seems interesting. I, I at least have a fond appreciation and love for the Beatles, but it, it doesn't look anything less than commercial. So yeah. So who knows about go? But isn't it romantic? Doesn't look much better either. Uh, here, I think you can weigh some thoughts in on this next one. At number six, we saw <laughs> so Green, Green Book. Book never heard of it. No? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, uh, it's still making money. That best picture win, uh, has certainly propelled it, uh, or at least allowed it to keep its hold on, uh, the box office. I'm sure it's a fine movie, but, uh, I think, you know, without having seen it, uh, I think I can accurately say with, with no doubts that, uh, this was not the best movie of last year. Yeah. It was interesting to see we, we've been talking about it a lot over the past several months now because, you know, it was in the box office for a long time and then it was out for maybe a week and then it came back again. And it's 
I'm tired of talking about it, and I think I've said how, <laughs> how much. Uh, why don't Why don't we stay on it for another like 20 minutes then? You know, yeah, we, just we, run through the whole green book. Mm-hmm. But yes, of course, obviously, we, me and you both don't have much to offer having not seen the film. But you know, I don't want to, you know, give it any more attention than it's already gotten. It's still getting a lot of attention, so I think it's probably best to leave it where it is, huh? Yeah, the the little Peter Farley drama that could. Yeah, uh, number five here we have uh, Alita: Battle Angel. Yeah, uh, Robert Rodriguez, and yeah, this is a, a misfire for another Jim Cameron produced movie. Um, had he directed it, maybe it would be sitting at number one right now. But uh, looks like uh, I mean it probably made its money back, right? It's at oh no, seventy eight no. million. No, there's no way it made its money back because this is a huge. Oh, budget was budget. 170. <laughs> yeah, I, I take that back. <laughs> uh, I thought they did it a little, a little more on the cheap. There's no way it's making its money okay. back. You know, this is another one we have a review up on the site for, and Calvin really enjoyed it when he saw it and said it was one of the better 3D films. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think Robert Rodriguez is going to be getting a big boy budget again anytime soon. Probably not. It's a shame, though. They seem both uh, kind of committed to moving in the direction of you know uh, digital and pushing the the limits there. But until we get those Avatar sequels, I'm wondering how how they'll pan out in the box office now. I mean, Cameron is pretty consistent, but uh, I mean, because the first Avatar was like. I mean, it still is the the number one box office earner, so it's not like Alita where... Uh, like, I don't think that... What I'm trying to say is that I don't think the digital had anything to do with the failure of Alita necessarily, just that it looked bad. <laughs> no other way to put it. It, uh, it. I mean, I, yeah, it just doesn't have as much universal appeal to it. Not that blue cat people are necessarily super appealing to everyone, but the basic themes, I think, are something that everybody has seen before and is willing to plunk down money to see again in bigger, flashier CGI form. Right. Well, I think that's what kind of worked about Avatar is that it was very accessible, you know, for what it was. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the complaints in retrospect come from it. Like, there's a lot of revisionist ideas about Avatar now, 10 years later, you know, and how it's not really all it was cracked up to be. But that's not really why people wanted to go see it in the first place. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I think R- Rodriguez for Alita is just happy that he got uh, some uh, production stuff. Like, I know they built some stuff in Austin. I th- not Austin. Where is he based out of? S- somewhere in Texas. He wanted a big, like, digital studio, and he got that out of this deal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nice that he got that. I don't think he, yeah, because he hasn't yeah. done anything in a while. Not since uh, the second Sin City film, which wasn't any good either. I don't think he even directed that, right? Wasn't that a... No, he directed that one as well. Uh, I think we just... Frank Miller. Oh. <laughs> we just don't talk about that one. No. Uh, it looks like he co-directed it with uh, Frank Miller. I think like the first one. Yeah. A- anyway, it wasn't any good. Uh, he hasn't put out a good film in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the, the hugest uh, on Rodriguez. I mean, I... I have some fun with uh from dusk till dawn and desperado obviously but not much outside of that i i'm inclined to agree are are you saying that you're not a fan of spy kids then 
Oh, now that you mention it, actually, those are pretty, pretty good spy thrillers. Mm-hmm. I'll stand for those. Well, uh, looking forward to the rest of our box office here, we have uh, Lego Movie 2 at number four here. Yeah, I'm already tired of the uh, the Lego movies, I'm going to be honest. I liked the first one pretty well, and Lego Batman was okay, but they sort of lost me once they started putting out Lego Ninja and now Lego 2, and it's just another of these franchises that is putting out movies faster than I can pay attention to them. <laughs> and they just, uh, their ADD style wears a little thin, I think. Right. I think the the first film was a, a really great success, and it was absolutely not what I was expecting when I went to go see it. But, you know, it was not something I was expecting more of afterwards. It didn't seem like a, you know, something you could continue to mine. But that's what they always do with these kind of franchises. Yeah, exactly. Legos are eternal, man. They are. I, I still remember playing with Legos. I probably still have a box up in the attic somewhere. They need to make a Lego horror movie all about stepping on them at some point. <laughs> Alright, so at number uh, three here, we have an even more exciting franchise to talk about. Uh, are you a fan <laughs> of the Medea movies, Graham? I I have not seen a single one, but uh, I'm willing to give it a shot. You know, you got to hand it to Tyler Perry that... Uh, after God knows how many of these movies, he's at number two at the box office with this thing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, pe- then, some people out there are watching these, you know. Yeah, plenty of people. I mean, look at the disparity between the the numbers there. I mean, uh, Medea is ranking in twelve million this week versus Lego, which is only getting three million. I mean, Lego movie's been around in the box office for a while, but still, that's a, a huge difference there. People are seeing this in droves. Yeah. This may be a Medea family funeral, but it's certainly not the franchises. That's my. Uh, that's going to be my pull quote for that one. <laughs> we can hope it is, but it'll probably rise from the grave again. <laughs> now, when it's making yeah. numbers like that, it ain't going away. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely not. This is Tyler Perry's bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two here, we have uh, the last How to Train Your Dragon film, which sounds to me like it might actually be the last like a franchise that actually is going to end. Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. Don't <laughs> they have a television show still? Do they? <laughs> they might. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah. They have a television I, show for all of these I things. This, I guarantee this will get some sort of spin-off sequel yeah. in three years. If it's, if it's not a direct continuation, it'll be a spin-off of some kind. It'll do a a Puss in Boots kind of thing. Drew Merckx won't let this stuff die. <laughs> but this seems to be oh, the more man. beloved franchise that come out of uh, Drew Merckx. Have you seen any of them? I have not, but I have heard good things. Mm-hmm. I remember watching the first one a long time ago, and it, it was pretty good, but I, I didn't love it as much as everyone else seems to. You know, but I don't know. I think it's uh, You were more of an Aragon fan, huh? <laughs> Uh, I, I still hear all the people who love that book reading up. They're so angry about that. <laughs> still, they're still angry about it. They should try rereading the book. Maybe then they won't be so angry. <laughs> all right. Number one, we have our uh, most controversial film, I think, in, in some time. But uh, Captain Marvel was really ranking in the money this time, to no yeah, one's surprise. It, yeah, actually, actually, I don't think it's proving controversial to the people that are... Uh, going to see it with that $153 million over the weekend. Yeah, I think I meant controversial. (laughs) I meant controversial in the sense that, you know, 
there's a lot of talk as to, you know, how um, much this film was going to push an agenda or whatever, especially with all yeah. the, the Brie Larson stuff surrounding it. And all there's all these talks of, uh, you know, boycotting the film from all the dumb incels and everything. <laughs> and that obviously didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I think whenever that sort of conversation crops up around a movie, it only guarantees that the movie's going to be a hit. Because oh, yeah. nobody's actually going to boycott, boycott it. Like the people either weren't going to see it already or were are still going to go see it and that just gets more attention to the movie. Yeah, they call that like the the Streisand effect or whatever, you know, by by trying to divert yeah. attention away, you're just going to cause more. Exactly. And Marvel as a brand now can do no wrong. Oh yeah, and they they were never this movie was never not going to make the money back even if it was god awful and offensive. People were going to go see it and like, you know, in crazy amounts. I was just going to say, I think this guarantees another 10 years of a... Uh... I agree that this is going to keep uh, Marvel going for a while. Some, you know, people seem to still be very invested in it, which is surprising to me, um, because I... and I know are, you, a lot are you still into it? Um, you know, I, I'm interested to see how they're going to wrap up with Endgame here, but after that, mm. except for maybe Spider-Man, I like Spider-Man too, but uh, after that, I... I don't think there's any person or story I'm really invested in, especially with the fact that they're apparently going on a somewhat elongated hiatus after this. Then, you know, where we won't see a Marvel oh. film for like ten months. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, the horror! <laughs> ten months of no Marvel. Well, I don't even know what's supposed to be coming after Spider-Man. Like, what's supposed to be lined up? I think they kind of threw a wrench in their plans with the whole James Gunn thing. Like, Guardians would probably would have been next. They kind of screwed up. Well, there. they they've got that uh, waiting for that sweet Fox deal to get finalized, right? And then they can start throwing uh, X Men and Fantastic Four at us. If they if they manage to do that, that could be enough to kind of give the franchise a bit more legs for me. But it would depend on how they do it, you know. Since I think a lot of people have investment in the old X Men uh, casting a lot more, maybe not the quality of the film so much, but you know they feel like they really nailed the characters. So it'd be interesting to see how they do. And kind of the same thing, I think, about how they're bringing back Lord of the Rings on Amazon. And, like, how are you going to fix that? How are you going to live up to that? Yeah, well, I think now that with Amazon, uh, they've announced that it'll be set, like, thousands of years before mm. uh, the movies. So they're going to avoid any of the major characters outside of maybe, like, Gandalf and Sauron and stuff like that, but I think they're still planning on reusing some of the sets from the movies, which would be an economical way of tying them in. Makes sense. Going back to New Zealand, I guess, to do a lot of shooting there. It's interesting that they're just kind of going back so more so. Is it going to be, I guess, more original material then? Or is there some um, Tolkien files that we don't know about that they're kind of digging up? Um, I think they're probably going to base it off of the history that's sketched out in the Silmarillion. I haven't mm -hmm. read it, so I don't know, but that thing is like a textbook worth of uh, information, so I think they're going to sort of fill in the blanks in between, uh, like use that as a jumping off point at least. I don't think I've actually known anyone who's read the Silmarillion because it's just so thick and like inaccessible. Like people talk about it a lot, but I don't know if anyone's actually read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man uh, I, I actually read the Lord of the Rings for the first time last year and I mean those are good books but even that it's a, it's a lot of descriptions of uh, landscape and history and so I imagine the Silmarillion is like 
the appendices of that book stretched out to like 5,000 pages or however long it is. Mm -hmm. Well, he certainly gave us a lot to work with, and I'm sure we'll be mining that, you know, those ideas for long, and, long And how are we thanking him with a, with a generic biopic of his own? Oh, yes, that's coming out It'll soon, too. With tw the, 2019's Bohemian Rhapsody. Nicholas Holt, I think, is playing him, yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So that'll that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Ah, in the meantime, I think uh, we would be good to move on to a subject we're both a little bit more familiar with, the, the movie we've selected this week, right? I would say so. decided to talk about the, the samurai classic from Akira Kurosawa, Yojimbo, which is, I think, probably one of the best entry points for him in his filmography. Oh, absolutely. This movie is just so unbelievably fun. Um, it was actually the, the second Kurosawa movie I saw. Uh, I'd seen Seven Samurai when I was a kid, but uh, Yojimbo is what pulled me back into exploring the rest of Kurosawa's filmography. I watched it in college and was just immediately blown away with how kind of how modern the movie feels. Um, it, it's like two hours long, but it just breezes through with sort of punchy comic book uh, humor and outsized action. Um, I don't know. How did, how did you first watch this movie? This was um, one of the, the early films I think I saw in Filmstruck when I signed up for it about two-ish years ago, maybe a year and a half. Um, the first Kurosawa film I saw was Hidden Fortress, and I had gone out and bought a copy of that. And then uh, I was close to it. I was uh, the second film after I saw Rashomon, which I still need to see again because I think I watched it like too soon in his filmography where I didn't quite get the complexity of it. But yeah, but Yojimbo that one is a yeah. bit of a grower. Yeah, Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo, and I would even say Seven Samurai as well, if you can handle the runtime, are like the most accessible I found. You know, they're they're very uh, adventurous and fun and uh, action filled, but also they have all of the complexities and um, you know serious uh, filmmaking aspects that uh, Kurosawa is so well known for. Yeah, absolutely, and something that makes those these three movies in particular more accessible i think uh, they're not i wouldn't say they're lacking in character depth but i think their character archetypes are more streamlined and sort of fractured across the different foils and stuff so you have these very stark personalities and then sort of uh they bounce off each other to sketch out the narrative and then they, of course they all have brilliant action sequences too yeah i think uh you know, it also helps that um, Kurosawa employs some really great talent here to embody these characters. You know, of course, uh, I think we could talk endlessly this whole podcast about how fantastic <laughs> an actor uh, Toshiro Mufune is. Man, he he's such a rock star in this movie. Like, the, the very opening, you don't even see his face, and you can just tell this dude has charisma, just from mm -hmm. the way he's walking and his swagger, and the way he shrugs his shoulders. 
Right. He's got, um, you know, the, the way he walks in, and I, I love that opening scene so much because it establishes so much about his character. Um, you know, I was watching a bit of the features as well last night on my uh, Criterion disc, and it said that um, kind of the advice that Kurosawa gave to uh, Mifune for the character is that his, his character is supposed to be like a, a wolf, like a, like a stray dog. So that's why he does all those, like, art arm movements and ticks like he's got fleas going on or whatever yeah he mifune he's such a great physical performer and i think in most of his roles he always tries to have a few signature physical characteristics for the character like in uh rashomon he's also sort of a lupine hyena-esque and that really carries through with just how he how he walks and how he moves and looks at people and here he's sort of laconic, but right. Oh, that's what I thought as well. Is that this is you know the the kind of perfect man with no name character that he's got going on here, even more than you know some of the the ones that took in Western influence later. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know Mifune's kind of wanderer, and that's why I love that opening sequence so much as well. Is that uh, particularly the part with the stick. he's literally wandering? Yeah, like he, he yeah wanders he, he doesn't even frame. know where he wants to go. Yeah, I love that bit, and it's all there's so much. Um, uh, like storytelling with um, physical there, I, I'm, and I'm losing words for it, but you know it, it, the idea that he's um, you know just wandering around and you know not sure of where he wants to go is all communicated visually. You know, like he throws that stick in the air, and then you get that instantly. You don't need any dialogue to understand that. And it's a it's a brilliant kind of introduction of where he's going. And I think it also sets up this kind of um, you know. Uh, removed from reality kind of sense. Like, this is very much kind of story we're kind of walking into where this is just one story in this guy's life. He's, you know, the Mad Max before Mad Maxes. Yeah, I like how you put that. And uh, Kurosawa's visual storytelling in this carries through because shortly after uh, Mifune's character is introduced, uh, something I noticed that throughout this whole movie is that uh, Mifune is framed in between other people's conflicts a lot of the time because i mean the story is literally about him intervening between these two warring factions and then the first two characters that he stumbles upon on his path are these two guys that are berating each other about uh gambling and he's framed in between them he's in the background and then the two characters fighting are in the foreground and this sort of foreshadows the entire plot of the movie really right well it also gives you a sense of uh what he's walking into, you know, we're, we're walking into the town and we're getting a lot of information as soon as we arrive there, not only from the conflict that we see between these two gamblers, but also then just from the, um, you know, proceeding actual entrance into the town, which is, you know, wholly desolate, you know, in how it appears. <laughs> what, you mean like dogs don't wander around with severed hands in uh, your neck of the woods? <laughs> That's such a great bit. It's such a, a fantastic bit for establishing how messed up this place is that he's wandering into and it's interesting because i thought about it afterwards i'm like you know the dog never shows up again and there are no other animals throughout the film but it's mm-hmm. not something i really worry about you know throughout the time but it's just a really good example of setting up this uh wretched place that he's in and just also the other details of it like how broken down this place is and you get all the the wind sweeping dust around all throughout the film which looks really you know uh engaging it's you know very vividly interesting also another touch that i love is that despite how bleak and macabre the touches are in setting up this godforsaken town or the the music is so like jaunty and upbeat it's 
very anachronistic. It's I don't know how to describe the soundtrack in terms of tone other than that it's sort of like, I don't know, like funky almost. It's a much more Western approach. There's a lot of um, yeah. horns in the soundtrack as well. I noticed like trumpets and saxophones kind of throughout, which is not typical, especially of a, a period, you know, Japanese film is usually a lot more traditional. And I know Kurosawa wanted to take a different approach. You know, he was trying to break the molds of samurai films up until then, which, um, you know, it really did. Like, despite how kind of quintessential samurai film Yojibo is, it's very subversive as well in what it does, because you also, you know, you consider that the, you know, Mifune's character isn't, you know, strictly, like, you know, code-driven inherently. He's morally righteous throughout, but he doesn't exactly play by the rules. Yeah. So, I mean, what's your take on his morality? Do you, th- do you think he's a good guy or a bad guy? Do you think he's truly as neutral as he purports himself to be? Hmm. Well, the way I, I kind of see his character is because I think the important context to consider in as well is that where and what time the film takes place. Because at this point, all the samurai are removed from their um, their placement in the world. And they're very much all kind of these similar wanderers. We get the same sense of uh, kind of character a year later with uh, Kobayashi's um, Harakiri. He has the same sense of how these samurai no longer have any place. So in the same sense that he's, you know, kind of wandering around and he's trying to find purpose. And, you know, I think he's a little beaten and broken from where he stands, but he's still a morally upright character. And you can see that kind of same sense in the Westerns, you know, that uh, Kurosawa was influenced by. You know, he's a, a, a Japanese cowboy, essentially. So do you think he's searching for something besides just money? I think purpose is kind of the the big thing there because he he really is a a man that lacks something now you know he he had he served before you know that was his whole life as a samurai and now he has nothing and so he's trying to find what he's meant to do in the world you know in a in a philosophical sense and you know money is obviously one of the other important things he needs yeah i think you're right on that and something that symbolizes that is literally his lack of a name like he has so little that he doesn't even have that. Mm-hmm. And they they do, like, unlike another man with no name stories, he does give a literal name, but they make a very good point of showing that he is making up a name on the spot with kind of that, you know, quick cut into the to the bush there. Yeah, the, the, the 40-year-old mulberry bush. <laughs> yeah. And, and they make some comment afterwards. He's like, you know, it's as good as name as any. Yeah. And then... Shortly after that, we see the other uh, hired uh, henchman climbing the wall and fleeing through the field, and, and he turns and waves to him in a very sort of odd sequence, I guess, to show, I'm not really sure, what the other path he could have taken, rather than staying in the conflict. Yeah, I think it's also a reflection kind of of how the the lack of duty that there is now to these these guys, you know. Yeah, that they have no obligation essentially to these people. And so, uh, what do you think about the the whole setup to the movie? The the two uh, warring factions. I mean, that's something that I think most people are f- probably most familiar with uh, through Sergio Leone's rip off of this movie, uh, A Fistful of Dollars. Mm-hmm. Is that it's, is it a setup that works for you? Yeah, I think that's a very apt description as well because that's I do very much consider A Fistful of Dollars a rip off. It's 
beat for beat, like taking the exact same elements, which is frustrating at times. But I mean, he got he got sued for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's a good ripoff, but it is a ripoff. Yes, and luckily it led to to even greater and more original films later. So it's admirable for that at least. But I mean, uh, the the premise of it is actually taken from you know a Western novel as well. Yojimbo's based off of Daniel Hammett's uh, Red Harvest and parts of The Glass Key taken in which the Cohen brothers also did later as Miller's Crossing. So hmm. there's a lot of that there. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because the influences of Yojimbo are both, you know, primarily from that kind of gangster genre that, you know, Dashiell Hammett wrote from, and then the Westerns of kind of like John Ford, which were a huge influence in kind of the filming of the film and, you know, the characters and everything. But uh, the, the setup of it, actually. And then it went on to influence Western films once again, so it yes. just goes to show the sort of a osmosis of uh, film ideas across the world. Yeah, it's very cyclical, you know, one influencing the other, and it's it's kind of very interesting to draw that direct line between all of them. But it, it was fitting that this, uh, this movie drew so much from uh, Western movie tropes, because at the time this was being made, the 1960s, uh, post-war Japan, a lot of, uh, I guess there's a lot of fear over Western influence and capitalist ideas, and I think you can really see that reflected in this movie's story, because it's essentially about uh, enterprise run amok, and uh, all the, the the human cost of that as people just uh, ruin their town through just unchecked capitalism and trying to chase the almighty dollar. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to, to look at as well, because Kurosawa was always somewhat chastised by the, the Japanese public for his more Western-style storytelling. Yeah. You know, people did not like him as much in his own country, and his films always seemed to be better appreciated overseas. But this was the biggest commercial success uh, of his life, you know, over in Japan. And it spawned, you know, of course, an immediate sequel after that with Sanjuro, and the character's always so popular. I don't know if you know, but he... Um, he shows up in like various kind of versus films. Like I think there's like a Zatochi versus yeah, exactly. or something like that. Yeah, very disappointing movie, unfortunately. Is it? Oh shoot! Because it, it sounded interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's worth a watch for sure if you're a fan of the character. But he, it's sort of a plotting movie, and it's directed by the Sword of Doom director too, which uh, also added to my expectations. Mm, yeah, that seems like it should be a hit, but. Shame. Sometimes it doesn't come come across. You know, versus movies just seem like they don't typically work in general. Yeah, they they're not really founded on a <laughs> core story beyond let's watch these two characters fight. Right. Well, I think the the fight that we do have between the two characters here though is very engaging. This is actually the first um, head to head between you know Toshiro Mifune and uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, who we've not mentioned yet yeah he this is the first movie that i saw him in and uh i was immediately compelled to as sort of a giddy sociopath here mm -hmm. which he does a great job of and then you know of course later in sort of doom he does an even more amplified version of that yeah absolutely and uh his character here uses a uh, a revolver which again is sort of a symbol of uh the west's influence on japan and the changing times Right, it's um, you know very different, and it creates a big obstacle, I think, for the film as well, and definitely something very different for a samurai film. That's not something you come across at all. So when you know he has to go kind of head to head to that, like by the time even the you know climax comes around, 
you still don't exactly know how he's going to deal with that problem. You know, it's basically an in invincible weapon against these, you know, sword wielders. Yeah, the the only hint you're given really is when he's uh, shacked up on his own and he's throwing the knife at the leaf and honing his his uh, reflexes. Mm-hmm. Which I believe it's also a very well done shot when they do that, and that's you know another simple movie done trick of just in reverse, right? Yeah, just reverse the the footage of it. You can't really tell because of how well it's done. Yeah, no, it's uh, he does. Kurosawa always has a knack for sort of camera tricks like, like that, like in a famously the end of Sword of Doom with the arrows in the neck. Mm -hmm. You you mean uh, Throne of Blood? But... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, one of the other interesting things I found with the cinematography this time, especially, was the intense, uh, deep focus that you have at times. You know, which isn't always easy to pull off. It takes a lot of lighting setup to do that. But you'll see, you know, and it's it's all framed so well with Mifune like way in the background, but still completely in focus. Yeah, Kurosawa likes to use uh, long lenses a lot of the time, actually, which flattens the plane. So a lot of times you'll see like the very compressed background, middle ground, foreground, and that lets the uh, the characters be sort of more comparable in scale as opposed to somebody like Orson Welles who uses like uber uh, wide lens lenses and uh, has his characters be tiny in the background. Mm-hmm. But again, of course, a lot of those, uh, you know, deep focus tricks are pulled up for, you know, famously from Kane, who, you know, Greg Tolan pulled a lot of the tricks from uh, learning from uh, John Ford when he worked with him on Long Voyage Home and Grips of Wrath. That was kind of the first uh, looking at experimentation of really, truly deep focus cinematography. And I think that uh, influence from John Ford films, again, kind of comes back around over to Kurosawa's here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, to talk about Kurosawa's knack for framing, especially his blocking, uh, the way he uses his actors within the frame and positions them. There's one moment fairly early on that really impressed me was uh, when uh, Mifune's character first approaches them and the, the, the swarm of goons comes out. Uh, I like how the he introduces the giant just by the giant's back is to the camera and the camera sort of panning around and then just out of the, the left frame, we see this huge looming f uh, figure come into frame. It's like this shock reveal, but it's done in a sort of subtle way rather than having like the camera, like lunge up to his face or anything. He just like moves into the background of the shot. And you're like, Oh my God, what is this? What an interesting character as well. I think that's one of the other really uh, cool things to pick about film like that that guy always stands out to me and he comes in with the mallet in the beginning he's all he, he stands yeah. out very much from the crowd i i personally feel let down that i did not see him smack somebody with it I, I know like that would have been great to see you, you wish <laughs> but there's a lot of characters kind of like him that stand out I, I love the the brother of that clan as well what's his name uh uh Inokuchi. that's his Inokuchi, yeah he's, yeah he's, he's just this little Fat dude, they made like as ugly looking as possible. <laughs> he's got to use his fingers to do basic math and stuff. Yeah, and he's sitting there counting like the, the first time, or whatever. But I also love how immediately you can tell Mifune's character kind of reads him and knows exactly how to deal with him. You know, and he uses him to his advantage by like like praising him as this great warrior or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's a lot of really great comedy in the film from moments like that, but the film isn't, of course, inherently a comedy, but it's funny throughout. 
which is very great. It's a great balance event. Absolutely. It's it's pitch black humor too, because I mean, you got like basically by the end of the movie, almost everybody is dead. Like it's about as bleak of an ending as you can get. He sort of just annihilates this already verging on ghost town and kills pretty much everyone, but you're laughing throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Because there's lots of, of course, you know, very funny moments. Like, Mifune's character, I think, is where the majority of the comedy comes from because he's kind of reading everything as a game he's playing, you know, kind of going back and forth and just the the nonchalant way in which he approaches things ends up being very funny. Everyone else is, like, shocked, surprised when he, like, turns on them or whatever. Yeah. And I like how he just sort of switches sides or just recuses himself from the big battle and watches it from up high and he's sort of chuckling to himself. Oh, that's a that's a really great sequence where he, he you know, decides to join one side and at the very last moment as they're all assembling to fight, he's like, no, I'm not going to, you know, you guys are going to turn on yeah. me. And then he goes to watch it, but they're still kind of forced to do this conflict. And it's very well edited scene, I think that's one really knows, because there's a lot of cutting back and forth, which you don't see a lot throughout the majority of the film otherwise, but it's very well executed cuts. Like, the cuts go mm-hmm. with the action. Like, usually when someone's kind of backing away, like, the, the the control of the crowd is another great, you know, aspect of that whole sequence, where, you know, you've got these large groups of people kind of um, reluctantly moving back and forth, neither side really wanting to fight each other, but kind of forced to, you know, based on the confrontation here, and it, it feels like a very realistic confrontation. And this is another example of uh, the framing I was talking about, where once the two sides basically reach each other, one side is on the left side of the frame, one side's on the right, and then who's smack in the middle but Mifune. Yep, and it's just a matter of cross-cutting back and forth between those perspectives, and it's you know very well executed as the kind of tension builds as to whether they're going to clash or not. And then ultimately, like right as about they're about to, they don't. I believe that's because that's when they uh, get the announcement that uh, someone's coming. If if I do have one minor complaint about this movie, it's that as great as the setup is and as amusing as it is to watch Mifune play these two sides against each other, I feel like there's a bit of a lack of real tension and danger, uh, at least until the third act when he really gets busted up. I feel like that moment comes a bit too late in the movie. Mm-hmm. I can see that, but I, you know, I still, I think it's made up by the fact that that is there. You take any other movie, and they'll just play him as an invincible character the whole time. But you really feel his pain. Like I think Mafuna really sells that pain throughout that whole sequence where he's like crawling. Oh god, those pitiful mum- moaning and stuff. I, I was cringing in my seat. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times, you you know, you'll see a, a big star if you get like that in any other kind of action film. And they won't be willing to show their characters weak necessarily like that. They don't want to put off that kind of style. And I think that's also very different from the Western influence that you usually see. Western films usually portray their hero as someone vulnerable. Unless we're talking about some of the more revisionist Westerns, like uh, High Noon, I guess, is, is one that certainly comes to mind. But you'd never see John Wayne, you know, groveling through the streets, you know, beaten to a pulp. No, but I would pay good money to see that. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would, you know, considering. <laughs> but that's a that's a really great kind of humanizing element before you come to the climax. Because if you didn't have that, I think, you know, it wouldn't 
there'd be no tension in the climax. You wouldn't feel like yeah. he's in any real danger. But you definitely, I think, feel that. The, the combination of, you know, being shown to be completely vulnerable and beaten to near death, plus the, the gun that's in play, that's certainly a real issue that's, you know, going to come into there. Both of those kind of make yeah. you uncertain as to if it's gonna, how it's going to end. Yeah, they made sure to really put the character at his lowest before that climax. So, I mean, even though the the tension in the movie is sort of delayed, it hits you pretty hard because it's all the more unexpected. I mean, when that giant is literally like palming his head around the room, it's a pretty intense moment. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I was like, oh shit, his hand is like the entirety <laughs> of his face. It covers it. That is... That guy is a monster. I don't know where. Yeah, they they, they use no camera tricks for him, but that dude is one hundred percent real. He's a behemoth character, and I think he he adds a lot to to the kind of town there. And again, I, I only regret with him is that he didn't do more. I guess within the film, it's the mallet, man. If he just smacked somebody with the mallet, I would have been one hundred percent satisfied. Mm-hmm. I th- I think the conclusion of the film, that final climax, is really one of the greats you know it has that kind of western influences where you see them gathering in the streets but i was kind of comparing i saw the difference between the trailer for the film which presents the climax as it's just between nakadai and mifune versus what we actually have whereas he's really up against the wall because he's up against like 10 people there you know it is coming yeah which again kind of piles on even more to the tension Something I really like about the fight scenes is, much like uh, the Western, spaghetti Westerns that would be influenced by this, there's a lot of build-up to the fights, but the fights themselves are over super fast. Like, he just slices through people. Oh, yeah, and that's one thing to be said, is that Mifune is so swift, you know, and especially even, like, in the first introduction where he cuts up three guys and lobs off an arm. It happens yeah. so fast, and it's it's very impressive skill from him, and there's no like uh, camera trick or footage, you know, being altered with to to make that speed. That's just how fast Mifune is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the same thing about the sequence in um, was it the the holdup they have where the the woman's hiding, where he cuts out through all the yeah. walls and everything. It's another great sequence. And again, Mifune is such a great physical performer, you know. Yeah, you just one you one hundred percent believe that this guy is capable of uh, annihilating six guys on his own. Mm-hmm. And again, you kind of you know, of course, you see that at the end there when he does rush up, and you know he's able to to dodge the bullet real quick and hit Nakadai with the the knife, and then slice up the other guys except for the one the one guy cowering in the corner screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and he just lets him go. He's too pitiful to kill. It's a great it's a great touch on it for the character as well, and a good way to send it off and continue to instill the fear and the the power of Mifune's character. And it sort of touches on uh, his uh, sort of hidden virtues as a character. Like he he plays himself off as this badass guy that doesn't care about anyone, but he's okay with sparing people when it comes to it. And I mean, he did put his life on the line to to free the woman and reunite her with their family right there's like that whole sequence where he's he's not as callous as he comes across he even tries to to kind of dismiss their thankfulness in that moment where they're still waiting around for him he's like you know get out of here (laughs) i don't care yeah he's a big softy their their sentimentality and their you know they kind of give him away 
and it's a problem. But you know, it, it does. That was a great setup, actually. That his his humanity is a thing that cost him uh, the chance to get out of it unscathed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good sequence as well because they set up the letter uh, in the yeah. sequence and it's left on the table. So when everyone else walks in, it's ten- there's tension. It's like the the bomb analogy. It felt very Hitchcockian. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so so it's very well kind of set up like that. And so when they do kind of find out, like you're just dreading it the entire time. Lots of great moments. Unfortunately, of the, uh, the store owner is uh, not the smoothest with his... Uh, his pull of the note right he tries but to no avail <laughs> it's like come on dude you can do a little better than that i mean who knows maybe they wouldn't even notice it if they didn't draw any attention you know that's, that's yeah that's what i'm saying he could have put the jar on it that's what i thought originally again watching over like he put the this one jar down i'm like oh maybe he's covering it but then he tries to sneak still i'm like ah it's, it's too much so yeah. gave him away it flew too close to the sun yeah uh, I think again, I guess, kind of going back to the climax. One thing else I want to talk about is the Kurosawa's famous usage of different weather effects throughout his films, and this one, of course, is a recurrent wind throughout. Uh, kind of the first time, mm-hmm. you know, it really comes up and is acknowledged in his in Nakadai's entrance. They even kind of comment and say, "Oh, even the wind welcomes you back." You know, there's always kind of a wind that yeah. kind of goes along with his character. But at, at the end, uh, it's really the, ramped up. Yeah, the wind. I think and the leaves and the rain and all, all the weather effects that Kurosawa likes to use really add something to the frame of his images because he, especially with this movie, there's so many scenes where people are just like standing still or slowly moving. So that's an easy way to add visual movement to the, the story in addition to like enhancing the mood. Mm-hmm. Well, there's definitely a kind of, uh, by the ending, I get this kind of uh, primordial feel to the the setup like you know when it comes down to the confrontation it no longer to me feels like the 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 battle for the town more so like a a more transcendent kind of you know good and evil kind of battle when you have all these you know this wind sweeping around it almost obscures the town completely like it's almost in um, a different plane and that's the same kind of feeling i get in a lot of western showdowns where there's no it's less of a conflict of people and more of morals and ideas it's interesting that you mentioned that it feels like a, a battle for good and evil because it, I, does it feel like good wins at the end? Because, <laughs> I mean, Mifune is no question the the better human being than either of the, the crime bosses, but it doesn't feel to me so much like a victory once he's done. Well, I, I guess it depends on the perspective of victory. It's certain, uh, you know, I think the... The idea to think of there is that, you know, the kind of at what cost, you know, it, you know, is the battle. Good certainly triumphs in the end and everyone's defeated, but look at all the destruction it took to get there. You know, is it worth bringing it? Mean, yeah, he, he literally killed, like, depleted the entire town. Like, sure, there are the couple good apples left in there, but is there anything really left for them there? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's their job then to kind of build up you know, from the ashes there, and who's to say if they're going to not just do the same thing again, you know, it's very possible. Yeah, I think one uh, particularly bleak touch that, at least to me, gave me the impression that things will just end up repeating themselves is the uh, silk owner comes out after Mifune has dispatched everybody, and he's banging his prayer drum to sort of cast away the evil spirits or 
what have you. And then he casts it down when he sees uh, his rival who took up the silk business, uh, the uh, the alcohol guy, the sake guy, and he just pulls out a sword. And That's uh, Takashi Shimura's character, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, Shimura. And uh, he comes out of this blackened room and he's just covered in blood and he's walking like a zombie. It's kind of like a, a horrifying moment. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me a lot of that shot in Throne of Blood. So yeah, again, very come at the end there, and it's not like this this victorious thing at all. It's definitely a kind of cycle of violence again. It's just felt like an ill omen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Mufune's character kind of just shrugs it off because he knows that his business is done, and he walks off into the sunset, you know, to go on to another adventure. Again, kind of very. Mag Max-ish kind of wanderer character. Did he even make off with any money by the end? I feel like he gave the last of his money to the the man and his wife. I don't, you know, I'd have to see again. I actually pay attention to the exchange of money because there's several times where it happens. But I think because he gave back the original twenty-five for you, and then he got the thirty from the other crew, but then gave it all to the couple. So I don't think he walked off with any money he, he didn't feel particularly perturbed about uh annihilating this town and almost dying only to come out with as little money as he went in with so yeah i think overall uh yojimbo is just like this uh it, to me it's the epitome of the the samurai genre even with its kind of subversive elements to it. it's got everything i'm kind of looking for in a samurai film and i think nobody embodies the character better than uh Mufune. to me it's really this kind of uh, encapsulated masterpiece of everything I want in a samurai film. It's definitely satisfies a, a certain type of sati- samurai movie for me. I, I don't know that I could put it up there with like Seven Samurai or Harakiri, which feel more like they comment on samurai, the samurai class as a whole and what it means to be a samurai and uh, to criticize the code and all that. Those are more serious period dramas, but as far as samurai fun samurai carnage goes you'd be hard-pressed to find a movie that's better than yojimbo certainly i think they're seven samurai and harakiri i think are definitely the superior films and they have higher ambitions but for what yojimbo wants to be i think it does that it excels at it and goes even further because it's, it's so artistically inspired as well it's definitely one of uh, my favorites still yeah it's fun to see kurosawa dip his toes into more fun movies like he's done so many different genres and stuff but to have a few like pure adventure movies under his belt is very satisfying to see right even you know because they're uh even since they're just plain adventure films they're so much more still artistically inspired and fantastic than anyone else who would do a regular adventure film take a break from their serious stuff it still manages to be a masterpiece yeah exactly it's like when kubrick dipped his toes in horror it's always fun to see these auteurs mess around in quote-unquote lesser genres. All right, I think that's about all we have to say. Thanks again, uh, Graham, for coming on and talking about this. Hopefully we'll talk about more samurai stuff and other non-samurai <laughs> things again. Yes, please uh, please don't pigeonhole me. I have, I have things to say about other movies, I promise. Yes, and uh, hopefully soon enough we'll get you back to, to do more of that. In the meantime, we'll, we'll also look forward to the next piece I'm sure you're working on to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, well, thanks again for, yeah, and uh, we'll come back again next week.